If you want legendary service, if you want sweeter discounts, shop under Linwick and Sherrod. See what it's all about. Switch to Sherrod. Get a quote and save by bundling auto and home with insurance. Building an area. Also, really cool to see that shot with the no outfield fences to see all of the heavy equipment underneath. I don't know why that fascinates me, but <laughs> I guess. <laughs> It's almost like it was a, like, Canadians games are conventions for Blue Jays fans, whether you love baseball or not. It's like a meetup. Of all the unions in professional sport, it's the MLBPA you don't think is going to strike on a dog dare. And welcome to episode number 160 of Artificial Turf Wars, where I have spent all of our personal payroll uh, headroom and haven't told Josh about it yet. So I'm Greg Wisniewski, <laughs> and I am joined tonight, as usual, by Joshua Housem. How you doing, Josh? I don't know. I'm feeling a little blindsided right now. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't a lot of payroll headroom anyway. I don't think you have to worry about it. Uh, okay, we're going to talk tonight because uh, a couple things have happened. The Blue Jays uh, did a, a couple 40-man moves and in preparation for the Rule 5 draft where um, teams gamble on what, what, other, what players other teams might be interested in. It's complicated. Uh, it's weird, but it's something. Uh, Josh also wants to talk to me about who's maybe not on the 40-man in that process and why. Um, we did get some pictures of some kind of stadium renovations happening because of minor leaguer. So we'll go into a little bit of information about that. Ross Atkins talked again, which always makes us talk again. <laughs> and we uh, have an interview with uh, Jason Tuckman, who was a finer, a fine, finer, former GM of the Vancouver Canadians. Uh, he's going to talk about some of the minor league contraction speculation that's happened this past week um and of course we have your questions we have the astros cheating like it was going out of style uh, and a couple free agents ticked off the list potentially so we shall begin with the at home news which is uh the blue jays uh put hatch and espinal on the 40-man roster prior to the rule five which tells us what about these two players josh well a couple things more one that the team feels that they could be contributors soon enough and decent players. And also that the team feels that there's a strong likelihood that they would get claimed if they were placed in or eligible for the rule five draft. I think that the second thing is the bigger of those two things. So that other teams value them as much or more than the blue Jays value them. Yeah. And you know, it's not very hard to see why. I mean, with hatch who came over in the trade with, uh, for David Phelps to from the Chicago Cubs when he came over from from the Cubs he just learned a cutter and was you know he was excellent with the, with the Blue Jays afterwards he was 2.8 ERA with 34 strikeouts and two walks in 35 innings which is They're not ridiculous. a lot of walks <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's incredible and he's 24 so he'll he'll be ready for the big leagues next year and you know like that's a guy that you kind of want to keep around if you think that he's made you know made strides to 
become a, a better prospect and, and a more likely contributor on a major league level. You know, before this, I would say that you know he might have been like a fifth, sixth starter type, which the Jays have quite a few of that. Mm, yes. But if they think he could maybe be a three, four now, then all of a sudden that makes him a lot more useful piece, especially one who's ready, essentially. All right. And Espinal? Yeah, I mean, with Espinal, it's, you know, he reached AAA last year. He's 25 now, I believe. He's the guy they got for Steve Pierce a couple of years ago. And, you know, he plays second, he plays short, he plays third, he plays the outfield. You know, that type of guy who is major league ready and put up the kind of numbers he did last year where you know, he had a decent on base percentage and hit 287. That guy will get claimed most likely. Right. Cause he's a useful piece somewhere among, uh, you know, a long list of major league teams who gets a crack at him. Yeah. I mean, he reached triple a and in triple a, he only played 28 games, but he hit 317 with a 360 on base and a 433 slugging a utility player who can, who has the bat to ball skills that Espinal has is very useful, especially with the extra man on the roster this year. So that guy would probably be very easy for someone to to keep on their team all year. All right. So that means that the Blue Jays had to say goodbye to some people, uh, and their choices were Tim Meza and Jordan Schaefer. Justin Schaefer. Yes. Did I say Jordan? Uh, well, I mean, it's Justin Schaefer, right? Justin Schaefer, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Jordan Schaefer was an outfielder. But so with Meza, I mean, he's out for the year with surgery. So he was kind of an easy cut. I expect that they'll, you know, they, he was, he was outrighted. So he, they can still hold on to him. I don't think he has the opportunity to, to elect free agency yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Schaefer was designated for assignment. He's already been outrighted once before. So he, uh, Atkins said that they were, you know, they'd, they'd like to bring him back. He was actually quite good down the stretch, but you know, he was, you know, he's just a reliever, like a, one of the many mediocre right-handed relievers that the Blue Jays have. So I don't think it's, yeah, it was a too too difficult to cut. Indeed. So the the other you know game that they play is there are only as you uh, like to observe a limited number of spots on the forty man that and this game gets played all year round. Um, but it's especially important to note who maybe looks attractive in one sense and is is maybe eligible to be claimed, but has been left out there by the Blue Jays and the reasoning that we have to guess was behind that. Yeah, and I think this is important because there are people wondering, well, where's Kirby Sneed? You know, the, the Jays don't have any left-handed pitching, and he was really solid. Or where's, you know, just pick. There's a few guys like Forrest Wall. I mean, he's, you know, he's he is what he is. But you know, there's some some good relief pitcher arms that might get claimed, like last year, for example, Jordan Jordan Romano and Travis Bergen both got claimed. No, they both got sent back. So the reason why, for example, like Brave Pilera is still on the roster. <laughs> Or who, who may or may not exist, as you previously observed. Right. Or Jonathan Davis or, you know, there's a few guys like that. And then people are saying, well, why not drop them and add these guys? It's not like they need Valera or Jonathan Davis or a couple of these other arms. The reason for that, in I mean, I'm not speaking for the Blue Jays, obviously, but my understanding of what it would be. Say the Blue Jays add Kirby Sneed. They drop Brave Valera and add Kirby Sneed. The problem is that the Blue Jays still need to make additions on the major league roster, including through free agency. So now when they go out and sign pitcher one, two, three, whatever, they need to drop someone again. And if they get to the point where the guy they want to drop is the guy they just added, all of a sudden now another team can pick him up and just pick him up off waivers and send him to the minors. 
Whereas if you expose him to the Rule 5 draft, a team has to keep him on the Major League roster the entire time. To keep him, yeah, or offer right. him back for a, a fee. So so there's a big catch to a Rule 5 pick, for a, especially for a contending team. Yeah, and even for non-contenders. I mean, at the same time, you just like you don't want to keep... Well, okay, it's one thing if it's like real non-contenders like the Blue Jays were. <laughs> I was going to say, Elvis Luciano <laughs> seemed to fit right in. <laughs> but he's a rare case. Like, for yeah. example, the guys that people are, are worried about are these relievers. You know, those guys are not a, something that a, re- a rebuilding team is going to build around a mediocre reliever. Whereas, you know, Luciano was a starting pitching prospect at 19. So that was kind of weird. But basically, it just comes down to a risk-reward thing. It's You're far more likely to lose a guy if you have to waive him than if he has to go through the Rule 5. You only have to waive him if he's on the 40-man later. So taking the, 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 the lesser chance of him being picked now means you get more flexibility later on. Yeah. Makes sense to me. That might be the only time anything about the Rule 5 has made any sense to me. <laughs> uh, so we got a picture from a Minor Leaguer on Twitter of Stadium renovations that look like they're they're uh, on the 100 level in the outfield concourse if i'm looking at the picture properly yes that is what it looks like that basically they've removed some of these so the way that for those who are unaware going around the outfield and part of foul territory i think on the 100 level there's the seats went very high so if you're standing in the concourse you can't actually see the field Mm-hmm. Um, they have removed it looks like they have removed that upper level layer of seats so like you know the section still has the first however many rows but the last two or three rows have been removed so that if you're walking around you can still see the field yeah because you would be staring at a concrete bulkhead if you weren't you know three feet tall and a child <laughs> at that. or at the back of a seat i mean yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of gap between those two uh uh, in terms of sight lines. So that's an interesting choice, I think, because those seats are, um, I, I think they're they're used quite often, but at the same time, they are not great seats. I've sat in front row outfield or second row outfield. And I mean, just like it says on the sign, you're 400 feet away from home plate. Yeah, but I mean, those seats are still there. Right. But what right. I'm saying is, is we're we're another 30 or 40 feet back from that at a less ideal angle is the seats that have disappeared. Yeah, the seats that have disappeared are they're also under an overhang so you can't see fly balls. But even if but I think it, regardless it's a very good change because walking around the outfield in center field it's it's like you're walking through a tunnel. Like it it just feels like you're not part of a baseball stadium anymore. So I think making it so the people going through the concourse can actually see the game as they're going to, you know, get food or drinks or go to the bathroom or whatever is a very good decision. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if they they do a little bit more with that, other than opening it up. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, whether it's whether it's you know display screens or or something else in that area, but we'll, we'll see what happens with it. it. It is interesting. We had a question about this. I think last time we had a podcast was, are they going to do anything? So, I mean, this is not a two hundred million dollar renovation, <laughs> uh, but it's not nothing. Uh, in terms of, of, you know, rebuilding an area. Also, really cool to see that shot with the no outfield fences to see all of the heavy equipment underneath. I don't know why that fascinates me. But... <laughs> I guess. <laughs> we just don't think that there's a bunch of construction equipment inside the stadium until, uh, you know, you realize that this, is, that this was a stadium that had to be converted into a football stadium at times. 
Mm-hmm. It's sort of so the Winterfest, which the tickets just you know, they went on sale this past week for the the event in January, which they've now done twice. One of the nice things about that is you get to walk around a bit the bowels of the stadium and see some of that stuff. Yeah. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, I think um, anything to keep people interested in the cold dead of winter would, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that Winterfest has only been done a couple of years with a number of other teams that did something during the winter for years uh, to bring people to the ballpark, you know, to sort of break up the off season. Just crazy. Yeah, yeah the Jays used to do an event for their season ticket holders in March, I think it was, you know, which where it was, you know, the, the executives, you know, the GM, the coaches, and they, they would answer questions and then be free the food. State and drinks. of the franchise. Yes. That, which yeah. it was called. And then it was called the lead off and it, its name changed a couple of times, but the winter fest is just like, just a much better idea. <laughs> and the thing says a season ticket holder and I'm losing a perk. I don't care. It's way better. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a, a one-on-one uh, chit-chat versus you know an actual celebration of baseball. Which one would you rather have? I think the vast majority of people would pick exactly what we get with with a fan fest kind of um, you know atmosphere. Absolutely. Uh, okay, Ross Atkins got to have another chit-chat with I guess Gregor Chisholm was. Uh, was the the author on the article but um he was talking about payroll flexibility and development and you had a quote here from him that you know popped your eyebrows up probably yes it did um so i'll set the stage a bit first i mean he was talking about all the flexibility i mean the the word flexibility i think appears 40 times in the article (laughs) but and it's mostly just quotes from ross atkins but um, he talks about the financial flexibility and the ability to make trades from their farm system, which is pretty deep. I mean, if you look at the recent baseball prospectus and baseball America rankings that have come out, there's a lot of things to be excited about in the system. And, you know, he, he finished the piece off with a very nice quote. It's like, we will add significantly, right? Mm. But the thing that raised the eyebrows, as you said, this is sort of a longer quote, so bear with me, people. <laughs> quote. One of our biggest challenges is that oftentimes the hardest thing to do in sports is to be patient. We have some young players that have not realized their full potential yet. Whether that's Brandon Drury, Billy McKinney, Derek Fisher, Teoscar Hernandez, there's a group of guys we feel are going to continue to get better and be good major league talent for some time to come. Now that thought part there, fine. Like that, that's a thing. The next part here though, this is where it raised the eyebrows. There's a lot of upside to our roster and being patient. We feel will really pay off in the end. That's the one thing that limits some of the flexibility that is being talked about. <laughs> Those players should not be causing you to pause for even five seconds. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, Teoscar Hernandez, I think, is a little different from the other guys in that group. He finished really well last year. Well, yeah, Te- Teoscar Hernandez has had stints of actual major league success. Not six-month stints. But you can see that um, he has he has at times put all of the ingredients together for an OPS well north of 800, even though, uh, you know, the outfield does continue to mystify him. He is a, a an offensive asset. Absolutely. But the rest of those guys. Yeah, I mean, uh, can you even with confidence say that Billy McKinney and Derek Fisher are major leaguers? I mean... Brandon Dre at least has had some success in the past, but 
still, I mean, those three guys should be the guys that you keep only if you can't do something else. They shouldn't be stopping you from making moves. And I agree completely. If just, I don't know if you want to sign, if you think these guys might develop in the next year, um, let them do that in AAA because you can always sign a veteran player with some skills for a one or two year deal. If he's a, you know, an aging veteran, like a, um, like a Curtis Granderson, right? That there are guys trying to hang on at the end of their career who, who know they're not going to get a three or four year deal who are much more likely to contribute than Derek Fisher, who's never put it all together, even arguably, I think in triple a, it's just crazy that, you know, you're going to handcuff yourself waiting on something that might never come to fruition. And why? Yeah. And be one thing if, you know, there'd been flashes of extreme upside, right? Billy McKinney and Brandon Drury, even at their best are, you know, they're the fringe guys at the back of a roster, like on a championship team, like say Billy McKinney becomes what they hope Billy McKinney can be. That's like a, a solid corner outfielder. That's not, there's no franchise player that you're all-star that you're potentially giving up on. Yeah. I mean, that, that guy is not, doesn't have any leverage in that way in any, any way, shape or form. So go out and fill the hole with something, you know, quality. I, they, the Astros, who we're going to talk about later for different reasons, have a lineup literally full of guys who are above average because that's who they've continuously pursued. And when someone wasn't above average, like Teoscar Hernandez, where did they end up? Somewhere else. On the Blue Jays. Yeah. <laughs> Derek Fisher, Teoscar Hernandez. Um, but it's, that's, a, that's a bloody hint. If, if the Astros are giving up on a player, and they're an extremely good judge of talent. You shouldn't be all in on that player as a as a potential flagship player for you. You should you should be looking. Okay, well, if we get something for them and we win, you know, we win the lottery a year or two years down the road because the Astros had a specific window, which might be the case with Teoscar Hernandez. I don't know. Or the Astros might might have soured on him because they realized that defense was never going to come to Teoscar's game, and they couldn't have that. Right? They wanted an all round player. Um, it's it's you get what you pay for, right? And the Blue Jays really aren't paying anything for the Billy McKinney's of this world. Yeah, and it's just it's just one of these weird things about the roster construction. I mean, you can afford to wait out a guy like that, right? Like one of these guys. They're all pretty much the same. But the Jays have like eight of them. And if you were going to say like the ideal plan for this offseason – it would be starting pitching and really pitching, obviously. Like, the pitching is obvious. They need lots of that. But on the offensive side, it would be to get another outfielder, whether it's a good center fielder or right fielder, and then Randall Gritchick plays the other one. Tosker Hernandez moves to DH, and you get rid of the other outfielders. Yeah, straight up. It's not as opposed to, uh, we can't make moves because these guys have potential. No. Stick, yeah, one of them can have potential in AAA. And the other guy can be moved for a relief arm. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. For the now, other two guys. We sh- now, we should say that there's certainly a possibility that Atkins is talking like this because these players are involved in trade talks. I think it'd be foolish to dismiss that. Sure. But it's still not something that you want to read. <laughs> it's, it's not what you want, as the immortal Joe Girardi used to say. All right. So 
I think I think again this all this constant constant tempering of expectations is just going to drive me absolutely crazy with this team. Now, okay, that piece overall was not doing that. Like, I, I don't want to make it. I don't want to mischaracterize no. it. Like he was. That was just a quote pulled from the middle of a piece. Like the, the it ends with. We will add significantly, and we're going to add amazing pitching that will help our guys develop and ensure that their timelines are appropriate so they're not rushing minor leaguers, essentially. So I don't want to make it sound like he was trying to temper expectations. I think he was just talking. Yeah, but just about these particular assets that we don't... I think it's because you and I don't know why they think they're so valuable. Because like you said, they've never demonstrated it at all, (laughs) other than Teoscar Hernandez. Uh, we're going to move over to questions now because I think we've uh, we scratched our heads enough about Ross Atkins. Time now to hear from our listeners. Stop, stop, stop. That just seems silly. You're going to make me stop right in the middle of the stinger? Yeah, because we should go to the interview. Oh, crap. (laughs) So fired. All right. We're going to talk about the minor leagues with uh, the former Vancouver Canadians general manager right after this. And we are happy on Artificial Turf Wars uh, to be joined by former Vancouver Canadians GM and baseball prospectus, um, uh, shall we say, participant, contributor, uh, Jason Tackman. Welcome to the show, Jason. Absolute honor to be here, gentlemen. Uh, the honor is mutual. We'll say that after we... It's a big love-in. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, you have the perspective of, uh, of actually having been the general manager of a minor league team, one in Canada, of course, um, the Canadians, and... Uh, there's been a lot of news about the minor leagues overall. So um, I just wanted to start with, with the general thing is, is it's always uh, in an affiliated club. You're looking at a, um, a roster of players that are provided by Major League Baseball. But major league, that Major League team is still paying those players, correct? Correct, yeah. And it's totally up to the players. It's totally up to the Major League Baseball team to decide which players and when they place them with the minor league team. So all the all the minor league team does is basically house them, feed them. Uh, you know, obviously they they take care of the transportation for games, and then but the actual players themselves are decided by the major league team. So my question about that is, what happens if you're halfway through a season and you have like seven outfielders because the major league team's been juggling people around on you? That's not uncommon, especially for a short season team like when we're with the Canadians. Is you'll get an influx of players after the first homestand. So we'll start off on the road and we'll have about 25 or 26 players for the first homestand. Then they'll come trickling in as they get signed after the draft. And then we'll have our first home game, let's say with 35 players, that'd be an extra five or six bodies that are not on the roster. So that's not uncommon at all, especially with an influx of pitchers. They just want to test out arms to see who wants to go lower or higher. And and then that minor league manager is tasked with is he told you know certain players are are prospects and need playing time or is he he's making that up as he goes along? I think what I I think there's an organizational plan to get certain players certainly when there's uh, you know cross checkers or other um, high level major league staff in town to see a certain player they'll profile that certain player but I think there's an organizational strategy on who to play when. Um, what's the what's their optimal position? Not to say that the manager doesn't have autonomy 
uh, in game, but obviously every organization is different, but there is an organizational strategy when it comes to uh, who's going to play where and when. So this is a super top-down kind of thing from the major league clubs. Absolutely, and I don't even, I mean, it's actually better that way because you want, um, you don't want there to be any um, dissension or you don't want there to be any sort of miscommunication. They want to be able to show, okay, well, you're getting a first-round draft pick. You want to profile that first-round draft pick and get their, let's say, 60 pitches in or their 150 at-bats in or so on and so forth to make sure that everyone can get a good look at that person. Now, contrast that with you get a Kevin Pillar who you know, signed out of signed out of university. I think it was a 37th or 39th round pick, and he just shot through the system because they couldn't keep him off the field. Mm-hmm. He was just dominant everywhere he went. And so it allows people when you see someone like that, now that's a very rare occurrence and your Mark Brothers and your Mike Piazza's late round draft picks that kind of forced their way into playing time, but it allows for the flexibility of seeing those players as well. Right. So there is, there is, uh, you know, there's more to it than the uh, the organizational direction. Absolutely, um, every single every single minor player I've ever met will always say, "If I just get more playing time, if I just get more playing time." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now and of course, you know, like one of the things that can throw that stuff into flux then is when the affiliations change, which. You know, the Vancouver Canadians, they, I don't think they did that while you were there, but they've done that a couple times over the years. I think they were Oakland and the Angels before coming to Toronto. Yeah, they were the Angels um, in AAA, and then when they left in 1999, and that franchise went to Sacramento, which is now one of the best franchises in all of minor league baseball. In fact, I actually wrote about it uh, when I went to Sacramento in 2017, just how great of a franchise they are. Um, and then a team from Medford, Oregon, that was a single, that was the Oakland A's affiliate, came in. And we were with Oakland until 2009, and that was after my first year as general manager. And then we changed it to the Blue Jays, uh, 2010 and on uh, 2011, excuse me, and onward. So it was late 2010 that we were still with Oakland, and then we from then on, it's been with the Blue Jays. Yeah, and you wrote about this with BP Toronto, actually, because. Jason was one of the people who wrote for our site, which we were very grateful for. <laughs> um, it's- it's a great relationship. Like I, I'm personally like I'm very fortunate and grateful. I know how lucky I'm to work for two great organizations, especially ones that not only put emphasis on the on-field minor league aspect, but just have great people in the organization who understand uh, sort of how things work off the field, also to make sure that the sort of the business side of things is very smooth. And that's I know how lucky I am because there are definitely some horror stories with other affiliates and just also working in business. You can you can see that like when your close relationship isn't very smooth, I mean it creates a lot of inefficiencies. It creates a lot of stress. So I, I know how lucky I'm to work with Oakland and Toronto. Yeah, and you so in that piece that you'd written about, there are constantly teams looking at whether they want to switch affiliations based on whether what the help they're getting from the parent club, the success with the rosters and stuff like that. And they, I believe you said that was every two to four years. Is that correct? Yeah, the way and I think that's one of the things that um, they're going to sort out um, in the new uh, PBA with minor league and major league baseball is a two to four year option. But and I wrote about this is there should be an option. Uh, for maybe 10 years is when you have a situation, a unique situation like a Toronto and Vancouver where um, it's such a great fit. There's no reason why they should leave, um, especially it's at a lower level. So it's not like Toronto is pulling players from Vancouver to play in Toronto 
Um, there should be a situation where it should be for 10 years, and that allows maybe for some capital projects or some infrastructure change or from if you do this, we'll sign for 10 years because it doesn't make any sense for both people, for both teams to invest when they know there's only a four-year window. Now, that is very similar to, like, let's say, with a player contract, with a major player contract. Just imagine if you were only allowed two- or four-year deals with free agents. I mean, that would drastically change how teams are built and how teams operate. Mm-hmm. So currently, it, it is tricky. And, like, there's always, the, you know, whenever you hear a major league where it's a farm director, general manager, and they'll always say, are you happy in this city? And they're like, yes, we're very happy. And sometimes the grass isn't greener. Like, sometimes you're very happy, you know, you're – there's happy because it's a good ballpark. There's very short transportation stops. Uh, there's not a lot of overnight trips. There's not a lot of cold weather. The stadium lends well to give you a true idea of, uh, you know, a, a player's capacity. So you'll often hear like the California League. It's sort of it's very dry, or like you know with Vegas, it, it gives you it might give you a, a difficult perspective of a player's true capabilities. But uh, they will always be very public. Um, signs of gratitude amongst major baseball, my baseball. Speaking, you know, that, that thank you for taking it in that direction because I, I had a very specific question about when your time was <laughs> with the Vancouver Canadians. I was wondering about your view on the fan relationship specifically, and whether you thought it was more people were coming to the Vancouver Canadian games because they were Jays fans, or if you felt that the Vancouver Canadians fans helped build more Blue Jays fans. If you follow um, both ways, it's probably both. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I'll tell you a story. We were we had a superstar series, and we in 2010, our last year with Oakland, and we had Dave Stewart come in. Uh, I remember the date because I'm good with dates. But it was early August, and we saw. We thought we were getting Dave Stewart, eight no in the ALCS. This guy was an absolute legend, probably one of the better players who's not in the Hall of Fame who's got eligibility. And we saw more Blue Jays stuff. And more Blue Jays fans for that game. I remember turning to a few people like, wow, that's a lot. Like, I, I would never see him as a Blue Jay. But that's when we first kind of got – like kind of you know hit you like, wow, there's a lot of Blue Jays fans here. And then the next year was just like an onslaught of just Blue of, – of fans being able – it's almost like it was a – like Canadians games are conventions for Blue Jays fans, whether you love baseball or not. It's like a meetup for Blue Jays fans and to celebrate their – childhood memories of the Jays winning the World Series or growing up in Toronto or watching the games wherever they were across Canada. And that's helped us. Now, to answer your question, um, I think that the Marley team creates the fan base at first. The people have to know to come to Canadians games. Um, the Blue Jays are a massive branch on the tree, or they were at least when I was there. I certainly can't speak for them now. Um, that's also a very unique situation where you have the only major baseball team in Canada with the only Miley baseball team in Canada. But typically it's up for the Miley team to create their own fan base. And and those fans are going to come regardless of their affiliate and the affiliate helps, but they want to be able to have something great for the community, which is why uh, with the New York Times articles that have come out in the last couple of days, you'll often hear fans are saying, no, we've been coming to the stadium for 40 or 50 years, or this is the only affordable place where people can come in the summer. This is the only, you know, this is where we spend our 4th of July. This is where we spend our, you know, our company outing. And there's a, there's a very emotional, almost intimate relationship they have with the stadium and going to these minor league games. So I, that's what I wanted to talk about is, is these, you know, rotating agreements that they have between individual teams and, and groups of, of affiliates getting kind of musical chairs around are one thing. But now we have Rob Manfred coming up with his uh, metaphorical screwdriver and he's sticking it in the light socket of, um, of the minor league, major league relationship and jiggling it around yeah. to see what happens. So um, 
how you know when was the last time this blanket agreement with the idea of of how the minor leagues was organized was even up for discussion well it was in the early 90s and i think it's only this is the you know at at best we can say this was a a negotiating ploy by major league baseball to kind of say this is what we're capable of so to speak and and if we don't get x if we don't get you know these changes then this is what we're thinking of now there's always rumors of contraction in baseball and and i heard, we we hear it every year there's some stadiums where they can't get upgrades and there's some and, and some teams like these this is not safe um you're always going to hear that certainly not a 25% swoop um like that's been talked about the last couple of weeks um I personally don't think that's going to happen. I think that Major League Baseball is going to align the minor league system a little bit better to make shorter transportation, maybe longer seasons for some leagues, shorter seasons for other leagues. Um, maybe have the minor league some minor league stadiums that are very old, you know, catch up to standards, so to speak, not just on the field but their facilities, and maybe get them up to code with um, nutritional. Uh, nutritional standards and video standards and, and maybe like, you know, weight rooms and therapy and all kinds of stuff just to bring it a little bit more into the 21st century because as as we know, player development now isn't just watching a guy take batting practice or watching a guy, you know, practice, you know, it, it's taking hydration levels. It's taking blood flow levels. It's making sure that they're eating properly, they're sleeping properly and taking all kinds of medical tests and they want to be able to make sure that the stadium could provide that and that they can have the infrastructure to be able to support the 21st century way of player development. It seems to me that like the simple answer to that would be for the major league teams, just like they invest in the players, to partner up, invest in the facilities that they want if they were, again, allowed to make a longer-term investment. But it, it seems to be cutting off your nose to spite your face to you know cut teams back and eliminate teams when you're trying to grow a sport and make it you know and, and raise the talent level in the sport less people playing seems just like the cheapest possible way out yeah i mean certain organizations will have their thoughts on that where they want sort of more players in the pool and the cream rises to the top like we talked about so they can find someone like a pilar piazza burley um or is it better for them to just focus and in the Blue Jays? And I'll speak just from experience. Is it for them to just focus more on the Syndergaard, Stroman, Sanchez's, um, and maybe have less teams who can have more resources on each player? And are you better off having deep dive into shorter players? But you know, we've always talked. We talked about that sort of very flippantly um, when I was with the Canadians, other general managers. Like, yes, we would love to be able to implement infrastructure or be able to do X, but with only a four-year window, it's tough for both teams to kind of be sure now. You can always have the verbal agreement of, oh, yeah, yeah, we're happy here, we're happy here, but so many things can change, as we know, ranging from farm director to general manager of the major baseball team changing to ownership changing in minor league baseball to a very unique opportunity coming where something where um, someone, you know, a major league team that's more local or, you know, it's, it's, it would be a lot easier if you'd be able to make a long term commitment and if the major league team knew that the minor league team was up to standard and up to code. I guess this is why you're seeing some teams like I think the Braves now own all but one of their minor league affiliates to create that kind of certainty. It's a it's a great strategy. And and again, those are unique situations because baseball is so fertile down south. And, and, you know, for the Blue Jays, imagine if they were able to go into each province and have a team it would be very similar to that. Um, but that makes it that, that's a perfect situation. And that they can go in, and then they can go and say, okay, and I'm just making this up, but an example would be, okay, we'll put in 
couple hundred thousand dollars every year for the next six or seven years as a money team you know you can match it the money can come from different budgets and we can do this brand new batting cages or we can do a brand new kitchen or we can do a brand or you know we can pay for an extra bus so our taller players don't have to be cramped if they're going overnight on a seven-hour trip Mm -hmm. so taking this in a different direction say that this plan like i know i know you said you don't think it's going to work out the way but if it did if they scrapped some of these teams and turned the northwest league into or got rid of short season leagues and somehow a team like vancouver lost its affiliation I don't think they were originally on the list, but I think if the Northwest League changed, they might be. But if if that happens, the league was talking about, well, they could form another league under the league umbrella, but they have to pay its own players. Are there any minor league teams that could actually afford to do that? Um, maybe. Vancouver is not a very traditional minor league city in quotations, so they might be able to do that. The Northwest League is actually pretty healthy. Um they have great new. I mean, they just really traded Yakima to Hillsborough. Hillsborough is one of the leading franchises. Spoken Indians have been one of the better franchises in money baseball for the last half century. I don't think they'd be. I, I I think they would have a solution. There's a lot of smart minds in there. Whether they would go to that Dream League or they would go to a longer season, um, I don't think the Vancouver Canes, as an example, would be in that much trouble. Um, would they might have to make a few upgrades to their stadium? Probably, but everyone would probably have to make a few upgrades to their stadium or at least promise capital um, or at least, again, bring it up to standards, not saying they're not now, but bring it up to this you know, hypothetical standards that we talked about is of what Major Baseball is holding as a, negotiating, as a negotiation tactic. Um, I think they'd be able to pay players. I don't know how that system could work. Like, I don't know what it would look like where they just take players from UBC or the Northwest and it's just a fight for players or it's that dream league or it's they would need help from Major League Baseball certainly in paying the players or you can have a few players that live in Vancouver and they can help with ticket sales and community relations in the offseason. They'll get creative. These are smart people working but I I, I don't think the Northwest or the Vancouver Canes um, are in trouble. Um, so when it does come lastly to this big, you know, negotiation, it's got to be a new agreement after 2020 as a, as a blanket agreement, uh, major league baseball, like you said, is flexing its muscles saying, Hey, we could, we could shut a whole bunch of you down. If you're not playing ball, what's the, the counter leverage? What leverage do the minor league clubs have? Cause they're all owned by a whole bunch of different people. How do they have to, to counter that, that influence of, of major league baseball? Well, one is my baseball can just say. We're, you know, unlike you, we have been growing in attendance and growing in eyeballs and growing in word of mouth. And they can say, okay, you want to, you're coming off all this negative PR, all this negative PR, and all, you know, World Series ratings are down. The World Series itself might be tainted. Uh, there's a fight about paying minor league players an equitable wage. You really want to get rid of a now cut out 25% of the teams? when people's fondest memories of baseball are in those romantic you know, moments where they went to games in their childhood, and Miley Baseball is the extension of that. And if they're going to be sort of big brother and just cut them down, they would just look terrible. So that's sort of the leverage, not to mention it would be very inconvenient for Major League Baseball to cut their amount of players that they have in the Miley League system. Some teams might not want to do that. There has to be some way or somewhere they can house them, not just at the facility. They would want them to play games and to be able to get a good grasp on their abilities. Now, Major League Baseball can say, well, look, currently we can't get a good grasp. We might want to shorten seasons or lengthen seasons or you know, they can get creative with that. Um, but Major League Baseball, Miley Baseball rather, has a little bit of leverage because they have the facilities. 
they simulate what competitive baseball is and players would get a little bit antsy playing in the playing in the complex for six seven months true true um so does rob manfred hate baseball a little bit or a whole lot (laughs) no i (laughs) you know i I, he obviously loves baseball It, it has not been an easy few months for him i i I don't think they wanted the negative publicity. I mean, they they might have thrown the first punch by saying they can contract Miley Baseball. It doesn't seem like it was a wise PR move because, again, Miley Baseball is one of the few positives that baseball has. And also, Miley Baseball has been looked at as one of the biggest allies. You know, the baseball winter meetings every year is one of the biggest conventions in the U.S. And it's always, you know, having been there Lord knows how many times, it's a huge love-in. Everyone's in a great mood. Whether or not you had a good year or not, because it's really celebrating baseball. It's all the vendors are, and, and business gets done. And I can imagine this year it's going to be a little, you know, it's going to be a little bit more tension in the air, which is a shame because, again, it's a celebration of the sport and how well it does on the business side. And we definitely need more of that, um, the way baseball has been going Amen. the last couple of months. So thank you, Jason, for joining us. My um, pleasure. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you having me on. The inside perspective of a former GM is truly invaluable. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Bye. We are back, and as it turns out, uh, we do have questions from people, and this <laughs> this is a more appropriate time with which to play this intro to the questions. Time now to hear from our listeners. That just seems silly. Here are the rules. First I ask a question, then you ask a question. Now how does that sound, sweetheart? Could you repeat the question, please? The most important rule is we ask the questions after the interview. Yeah, this is usually the way we do things. <laughs> By the way, just before we go to the questions, in case some people listening were thinking, hey, that guy sounded familiar. He has been on the podcast before, about a year ago, under the name Bennett Brower. <laughs> now, there were reasons for that. He just he, he wasn't using his real name because of other business opportunities. But Jason is the same person. He is the former GM of the Vancouver Canadians. And I guess he was our former writer at VP Toronto. And we were very happy that he did that. And he is out in the light. Fully exposed. Yes. This is the real the real deal now. All right. Uh, Kevin Citron asks... No, he didn't. That was last week. Z- Zed Smith at Saki3 asks, Who are the Jays going to package with Bichette to acquire Lindor? <laughs> I, I, I mean, like this... questions that make like four assumptions before they even get to the question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Francisco Lindor is apparently on the trade block or... Theoretically, on the trade block, the the Jays are not going to be Jordan Groshans. <laughs> trade both their shortstops for Lindor. Uh, yeah, I think if the Jays were going to go after Lindor, I don't. Yeah, I mean Bichette. I don't think it would take much beyond Bichette. I think it would take Bichette and another decent guy, but not a ton because you know, it's only two years of Lindor. Um, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, you know, everybody wants to... The Blue Jays have traded for shortstops a lot. That was back when they didn't have an in-house option at shortstop, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Matt Sweeby at Blue Jay Matt. I'm getting impatient for Adkins to make some moves to raise the ceiling for the team. Can you tell me how ridiculous I'm being, please? Uh, this invites a a broken roof at the Sky Dome uh, joke here, but I'll let it, I'll let it slide. Are they, <laughs> they going to raise the ceiling? 
you mean if the, are you still making a joke or are you no. actually asking the question? <laughs> no, I'm actually asking the question. Is is this yes, team going to have? I think that they team? are going to. I think the team knows, like they have to, right? I mean, <laughs> it's the the time is this off season now. The ridiculousness about the impatience. If you're just meaning like you want the move right now on November what is it the 20th or something like that, 21st. Then, yeah, I mean, that's a little impatient because the only guy who signed is Yasmani Grandel and a couple of relievers. But when it comes to this offseason, you should not be more patient than that. Also, there is a strike coming in 2021. Um, so, you know, if I'm the Blue Jays, I'm trying to build as much fan goodwill as I can in 2020 because there's not going to be there's not going to be the proper number of games played in 2021. 21. I bet $100 on it right now. Yeah, I was going to discuss that afterwards, but yeah, <laughs> we can just quickly allude to this now. We're going to take a break from the question for a second because we're just not doing our questions at the right time in this podcast. Um, yeah, Rob Manfred came out and made some comments about not trading economics for labor peace. Uh, yeah, no economics concessions for labor peace, and then it was just a bad look. It's like saying, "Hey, are we dare you to strike?" Yeah, because you know, we're, we're not. We're, we don't care. And then there's talk about <laughs> people thinking that that meant that they're going to try to put a salary cap or get rid of guaranteed contracts. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> what I like about that particular angle with Rob Manfred is, of all the unions in professional sport, it's the MLBPA you don't think is going to strike on a dog dare. <laughs> <laughs> like were you paying any attention to baseball history <laughs> it's never happened it's just like it's like you sneeze and they're on strike it's like whoops <laughs> we'll get back to work eventually yeah so it, it doesn't sound good no it's bad all right back to the real deal uh do you want to ball her yes at baseball her will shapiro be impeached uh, well, actually, in light of what we just said, I think probably impeaching Manfred is way more important. Can we have a recall election or something? So, by the way, as some people may recall, Paul Beeston, in his last year as the president of the team, backed, I think, yeah, was it Jerry Reinsdorf for president, for commissioner? Yeah. Um, maybe the Beast was doing a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to help the league on the way out. Yeah, I don't think we've ever given retroactive credit to Paul Beeston for anything, have we? Uh, probably not. It hasn't come up. So, yeah, there's his. Uh, that's the nicest we've been to Paul Beeston on the podcast. Yeah, he could have known something. Oh, man. Uh, okay. Sean at Sean's Jays says, so, oh, this is in reference to the tweet that you sent out, uh, which yeah. was, the offseason is once again sleepy, but we're recording a new turf pot. Uh, and he said, so what you're saying is a move is coming after the recording ends. And also Luke at Split Letter said, well, the Jays make a move within 48 hours of recording this podcast to make it immediately out of date. Our <laughs> listeners know us. Yeah. <laughs> they know our history. <laughs> we we have powers uh, probably that we don't know how to use. Uh, yeah. Anytime we express confidence that it's just not going to happen, it, it often happens. That's it's not even that. It's just like we'll record a podcast and we'll go through it. And the next day a move will happen that we clearly would have talked about. Uh, was it two years ago? I think it happened four podcasts in a row or something like that. Yeah. So I really hope it happens again. <laughs> We've had it happen 
after we recorded a section of the podcast, but not a different section, have we not? Yes, we have. <laughs> I haven't even edited it down to anything, and it's wrong. This is awesome. <laughs> okay. People are going to listen to this and be like, wait, you edit? <laughs> after that, the way we ended that first section. There's a there's quotation marks around that. I... <laughs> I I, I take out, uh, I don't know what I take out. I take out things that you're not going to miss. That's my whole entire job. Uh, okay. Jamie Sayer, full-time Raps fan. Well, if you're a full-time Raps fan, Jamie, you're, you've clearly broken your own rule here, but okay. Uh, at Jamie double underscore Sayer asks, is Zach Collins a decent target for the Jays? Should I ask this to you, Greg? No. <laughs> <laughs> so Zach Collins, I assume you're referring to the White Sox catching prospect. Um, no, I don't think so. The Jays don't need another young catching prospect. And part of the reason that the White Sox did what they did, which is signing as money ground out to a four-year $73 million deal, was they didn't like the options they had in the house. They had McCann, James McCann, not Brian, and Collins, neither of whom is a very good defensive catcher. And, you know, with the way that the game is going, with the framing and and how much of a difference people are thinking that makes, then, you know, they they decided they wanted to go with the major upgrade in Grandel. And the Jays have two guys who are actually already very good at that. So I don't see the point in adding another young catcher. All right. You can hit me with one now. Okay. So this question comes in from Zaheer at Zeroid. Suppose you are a premier free agent with a competitive offer from the Blue Jays. Let's say it's the best offer on the market, but not significantly so. What's the best reason to sign it? What's the best reason not to? Um, I think the best reason to sign it is that the Blue Jays are, you know, they're a respectable franchise. They they tend to treat their players well and do right by them. And the team is on the upswing in terms of competitiveness curve. So that's the best reason to sign it. Also, you can stay in the hotel right at the ballpark, which it's, you know, Roberto Alomar did it, right? The best reason not to sign it is that they're not the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers or the Astros, and those guys are clearly, right now, leaps and bounds ahead on the competitive curve. And uh, three of those teams look like they're going to stay there for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, it really, I think it really depends on who the other team is, the offer is coming from, right? Like, if it's an offer from the Blue Jays and an offer from, I don't know, the Mets? The Diamondbacks? Look at the, yeah, but it's like, the, or the Orioles or something. It's like, you look at it and say, okay, that this, this Blue Jays system, even though it's another country and, you know, all that nonsense, it's like this might be a better play over the next few years. But I think, yeah, if, if it's like, if you get a comparable offer between Toronto and, yeah, it's like and the twins like you're taking the twins offer mm-hmm. all right uh tits mcgee <laughs> remember a tit is a kind of bird uh at sale 9070 asked what did the jays do with the extra roster spot well i think that atkins may have given us some indication of what they might do with that because they have too many outfielders and i think they'll just use one of them on to keep their out of options guys like Derek fisher on the field Hmm. roster um at, now whether i think that'll be the case all season i think at some point this is where you could see the value of a guy like santiago espinal or brandon drury actually but you know, guys who can play multiple spots so you just you have that extra bench spot that can back up pretty much everywhere 
Right, because we definitely don't need to use it for a pitcher. Yeah. All right, so this one comes from Brian A. at BJ Arsenal 84 If you had the pleasure of inventing a food dish that's related to baseball, what would it be and what would you name it? I feel like it's going to be a very long winter if we're going slowly sliding in this direction. Uh, <laughs> inventing a food dish. Uh, well, obviously, I think calling it the home plate is easy. It's just a matter of figuring out what what ingredients to put on the home plate. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I think don't it's know. a food dish where it's like you just have to pick any five ingredients from your fridge and put them on the plate because it's your home plate. Okay, I'll go. It's with a rotating it. dish. Yeah, it could be. It's like a chef special, the home plate. Yeah. Now the real trick is buying a five sided plate. <laughs> Not very convenient. <laughs> Not at all. What What do you got? No, let's go with that. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. at the risk of having no good answer. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll try that. There's a reason I asked you the question. Uh, Aaron Poleski. Greg Bird. Brock Holt. Bird Holt. Greg Brock. <laughs> neither, neither, both. <laughs> um, Brock Holt's not bad, but I don't think he's necessary. And Greg Bird has never been that good and he's a DH only who can't stay healthy. So definitely not like, like if the Jays signed Brock Holt, I wouldn't be upset even though I really don't like Brock Holt, <laughs> but I don't see any reason to pick up Greg Bird. Fair enough. I, I think Brock Holt. Yeah. Is, is an interesting idea. I feel like there's going to be other people who are going to offer Brock Holt the same money and he's going to be more interested in playing for. Is that wrong? Yeah, I don't, I don't know actually what, what his market is going to be like, but I think that just he's more of the, the type of piece that a team that's ready to win now adds. A guy who can play everywhere and hit decently enough. You know, just not the rebuilding or one or two year away clubs move. Cool enough. All right, that concludes our questions. Which means we get to use... Uh, okay, so quickly, we're going to do the free agent stuff, and then we can talk about the Astros, I think, would be the better order to do to do this in, yes? Yeah, I think so. So, yes, Monty Grandal, who uh, the Blue Jays probably would not have been interested in, but um, if the Blue Jays were looking to trade a young catcher, uh, teams with catching need would have been also looking at yes, Monty Grandal. He has signed. Yeah, we alluded to this in the questions, which came up with the Zach Collins one. Um, you know, like there's been a lot of talk about what the White Sox are doing. And, you know, they signed Grandal, and now they're apparently going after Zach Wheeler. The White Sox are not better than the Blue Jays. Uh, Rob Silver highlighted exactly that in a tweet, so we'll give him credit for that. He says, the consensus seems to be the White Sox could contend soon, maybe as soon as 2020. I agree with the consensus. The awful 2019 Blue Jays scored more runs than the also awful 2019 White Sox. The Jays also, somehow, gave up fewer runs in 2019. The Jays should also try. Right. And that's the crux of it. That these two clubs are built very similarly. They both have very strong young cores of players with very notable holes. But that if they fill those holes, the team can get really good in a hurry. And I don't know if the Jays are or not. I mean, everything they're saying says they're going to, but we have to actually see it first. Whereas the White Sox clearly are. I mean, they offered Manny Machado $250 million last year, and they just signed Grandal. So 
there was a difference in division, but I think that it's time that the Jays take that next step. I mean, that's it, the, the the biggest thing that they could do that could hurt them would be not taking the next step in the rebuild at the right time and falling behind these other teams like the White Sox or the Angels or the Mariners or whoever else are also doing their rebuilds. Well, because, yeah, the first, you know, step in the rebuild is getting to playoff contention and playoff contention is the wild card and the wild card is really not division, quote unquote, dependent. So you need to think about not just what the Yankees and Red Sox are doing if you're trying to make the playoffs. Or the Rays, even. Yep. And to that point, for those of you hoping for Jake Odorizzi, we're sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Yasmani Grandal, I think, proved what the, what the value of doing that can be. Now, he didn't take the qualifying offer last year, but he took a deal that was essentially the qualifying offer. And then he went back out and got a four-year, $71 million deal. So that's what Odorizzi is essentially doing. I mean, he even said said as much, that his market wasn't strong enough with the qualifying offer in that first week that he's going to take the one-year $18 million and then go back out next year without one. Yeah, that's just a friendly reminder for those of you who uh, didn't know about the rule change or weren't familiar with the rules is, is that qualifying offer can only be attached to a player one time. Um, and right. then they're free the second time they go out onto the free agent market to uh, not have that that problem <laughs> uh you know tied around their neck so yeah that's it. like you said odorizzi freely admitted that's what he's shooting for um, and just from a jay's perspective it just you know he was a guy that they were apparently targeting and should have been targeting so it was kind of disappointing he left the market yeah all right the houston astros are cheaters <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> cheaters who won the world series no, that's not this year. That's back in 2017. Um, so they decided that the signaling signs by having someone watch them live in the clubhouse and then beating on a garbage can when there was a breaking ball coming was one of the ways that they were going to cheat. Yeah, it's pretty... It's pretty crazy that that, <clears throat> that was the way that they picked because it's really easy to check it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, there's so many angles to go to this with. Um, so my take or or my my curiosity is as follows. In 2017, you won the World Series by cheating um, and you didn't get caught with your rather admittedly unsophisticated way of cheating. Why would you stop cheating? And then some people must have left the Astros organization over the course of the next two years, because we're here at the end of 2019, who knew that the Astros were cheating and how they were cheating. And instead of bringing that to light specifically, they did what with that information, uh, knowing that you wouldn't likely get caught by doing it? Well, this is one of the interesting things that, uh, so Dan Zaborski, frequent guest of our podcast, friend of the pod. <laughs> He he was talking about it. So Mike Fires was quoted on the record about saying that this was going on when he was in Houston. And people were like, wow, great job going on the record. Like, that doesn't usually happen. I agree. But what Fires was doing, he got – so he left the Astros. He got traded. And – or did he sign as a free agent? I can't remember. But he was just telling his new teams about what was going on so that when they went into Minute Maid Park that they were prepared for it. So he was still allowing it to continue going on for two more years for every team except the eight when they were playing Oakland. So I, I, it's not like 
he should have gone to the commissioner if he was really that worried about this. Additionally, though, there is this. So we got from Rod Manfred, oh, I, I, I have no evidence that any other team is engaging in cheating. Well, which is okay. crazy. Yeah. Well, I'm Mike Fires. I come to the Oakland A's and I say, this is how the Houston Astros are cheating. We're going to avoid it if if we you know we are careful with our signs when we're in Minute Maid Park. I think it's really important. By the way, they still haven't been caught, despite me not being the only guy who left the team. <laughs> this, is that not impetus to immediately think of a, a more sophisticated way to do the same kind of thing if you're the Oakland A's? Like, I don't know that it is, because I think that if you do get caught, just because someone hasn't been caught doesn't mean they won't. I mean, the fact that Mike Fires left to their team and said that this was going on, I think would be enough to scare you away from doing it, especially a team with the roster turnover that the A's have. But I, I right. Because it just needs one person to go to the say instead of saying it to the to the new team to say it to a reporter or to you know and then all of a sudden you're in big trouble like the Astros are now. But it took two years. Yeah. And they won a World Series in the meantime. Well, they won World Series beforehand, but yeah. But but my, my just my thought there is maybe the Oakland A's wouldn't have said yes, but. If you have, you know, a half dozen people who left the Astros through free agency trades, whatever else, and the end result was that nobody ratted the Astros out even to that point, it would certainly be tempting, or I I would believe that one of those teams tried something more sophisticated, said, okay, well, this is how we would catch the Astros or out them, but we can do one better with the same kind of system. Well, I mean, and even in the reports about this, they were saying that the Rangers and the Brewers were doing something as well. And that led to a very funny exchange with you, Darvish, and, and Christian Yelich going <laughs> overreacting like crazy on Twitter. You, Darvish, by the way, has been the MVP of the offseason with his Twitter account. Yeah, we're going to give him a gold star, I think, probably next week if things are, or next podcast if things are slow because he's he's been all over the place. Also, Josh yeah. Donaldson chimed in with, I've had, I've had no luck what you got, which was hilarious. Yeah, yeah that, that was a very funny exchange. But so, I mean – the original report said there were more teams doing it. So Manfred's saying, I think this is only the Astros was nuts. <laughs> it was completely nuts. Well, the whole thing is, uh, we're going to wrap it up because we've been you talking know, for a long time. Yeah. Um, but this, this is not going to go away. Um, and I think it's going to cause a lot of questions going into 2020 about how teams maintain a particular competitive advantage in their home park. And there's going to be a lot more than man and white discussions going on. And it's going to get in the way, I think of, of some people's in, not enjoyment of the game. It's going to get in the way of the game from time to time. I'm sure of it. Yep. Okay. All right. Hit me with a final thought, Mr. Josh. Okay. So we're getting a little deeper into the off season. The winter meetings are coming up a couple weeks from now. We talked about, what the Jays are doing and or not doing and like these quotes from Ross Atkins. I think that you have to take any quotes from the front office with a grain of salt. But the quotes that are interesting to me and actually have me with a little bit of hope are coming from Scott Boras. Scott Boras has railed on the Blue Jays numerous times over the last few years for not spending. And this year he softened that and essentially said that like, yeah, they're coming out of it and that they're, they're looking at actually doing real things. And, He's not one to say that if it's not true, usually, because he doesn't he doesn't gain anything from that. So that was interesting. I just thought I would point that out. Scott Boris, barometer of the game. 
Yeah. <laughs> Do I have a final thought? Um, this is the the lowest point of the low, I think, of the off season for me because we haven't had all those meetings and the the rule five hasn't happened and there's only a couple signings. Yeah, this this probably as slow as it gets, folks. Although you know we found out that it doesn't really pick up until February now. Uh, but we, stay, it does seem to be going a bit faster this year, though. Yeah, stay with us. Stay with baseball. It will develop as we go. Um, and this year is really going to be, you know, it's going to be labor strife free. Uh, and I would advise you to enjoy every waking moment of that because going forward, it's going to get nasty. Ending so, on a nice, happy note. <laughs> yeah. Well, the happy note is that uh, you have been Joshua Housem and uh, at Joshua Housem, and I have been Greg Wisniewski at Coolhead 2010. And our guest was uh, Jason Takafman at, help me out here. Jason B. Takafman. Um, and this has been Artificial Turf Wars episode number 160 and we'll talk at you in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.